Hi, guys. Um, so we're reading from two passages today. The first one is uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So that one says, For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And the second verses are from Romans chapter 5, and it's verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have get, obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Thanks, Alicia, for reading it through. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. If you're tuning in online, great to have you with us. And um, for everyone who's here in the building, thanks so much for being here with us this morning. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, it's my privilege to be able to be working through some of these deep questions with you as we move through our doubt series. So if you have decided to spend your morning with us, either online or in person, I really appreciate that. And I hope, I hope that it's valuable time and worldview-forming time as we wrestle with some pretty significant questions. The first week we looked at the question of, can I believe when there's so much hypocrisy in the church? Last week was, can I believe when there are so many problems with the Bible? But this week is slightly different. So the first two weeks, we really looked at, I guess, problems or objections that are almost unique to Christianity. But now as we hit the third week, we're hitting the question of suffering which I would put to you is a problem for every worldview, no matter what it is. And everyone has a worldview. And so because it's slightly different, I'm going to take a slightly different approach to it this week. And hopefully it's a good approach. But the way we're going to go through it this week is I'm going to have a look at the various ways that worldviews and cultures deal with the question of suffering. And then to look at the claims of Christianity and the story of the Bible and how that teaches us to understand the meaning of suffering and of God and his goodness through that. And so that's how we're going to go this morning. Now, that wasn't my original approach to this talk, but my computer crashed and I had to start again. So that could be evidence of God's intervention, or it could just be evidence that I need to update my six-year-old laptop. But we'll, we'll find out. We'll find out if this is a helpful approach or not. But the reason it is an important question, and the reason it's so good that you could be with us here this morning, online or in person, is that you, you have to wrestle with the question of suffering if you're going to have a deep or significant or meaning-producing worldview. And that's for everyone regardless. The ground is flat. Everyone has to wrestle with this issue. Ernest Becker, who's an American cultural anthropologist who had also experienced some of the horrors of World War II, wrote a book called The Denial of Death, which is a cheery book. But he wrote in this that I think that taking life seriously means something such as this that whatever a person does on this planet, it has to be done within the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything, otherwise it is false. For Ernest Becker, he believed that if your worldview 
does not take into account the realities, the profound realities of suffering, what he called the rumble of panic beneath everything, if it doesn't account for that, it is so superficial as to basically be false. That the real test of a worldview is how it handles this one question, that of suffering, because it pervades everything. I think that's probably even more true right now than it was even, say, two years ago. Because even though it's the case that at some point in our life, we do have to end up dealing with the rumble of panic beneath everything, at some point in our lives it breaks through and we, have, we are confronted with suffering and need to deal with it, we're in a strange moment where, at the same time, across the whole world, every, although countries are experiencing it differently, everyone is almost equidistant from the rumble of panic. One writer who was being interviewed last week, someone who writes for the New Yorker magazine, said she felt that over the last two years that her experience has been of being so close to death that she could literally reach out and touch it. For others of us, we've never before had the experience where you just had a mild sore throat or a runny nose and started to wonder the question kind of flashing through your mind, is death actually growing inside of me? It's never been so close, and so there's probably never been a more fitting time to wrestle with this question of suffering and ask the question, do we have a worldview that can deal with it? Because every culture everywhere has had to wrestle with this problem and come up with some kind of a solution, an understanding that makes meaning from suffering and gives a story by which we can actually understand it and not just cope with it, but actually maybe even thrive in the face of this reality. Now, I'm going to try and summarize briefly four different perspectives, cultural perspectives, on suffering. Now, of course, this isn't comprehensive, and like we've kind of been saying each week, these talks are meant to just be kind of opening the door on these questions, and we're not obviously going to cover absolutely everything. But my hope is that it's enough to give you an understanding to start asking the real questions that need to be asked of a worldview. But if I was to boil it down as, as quick as I can to four views, I would say that there are four kind of approaches from Eastern or Western or whatever cultures to the question of suffering. And the first one is one you might be familiar with. It's what we'll call the moral view. The moral view of suffering is that suffering is a moral issue. And that basically the universe is perfectly just. There is a supernatural force or a God who supervenes over all things and ensures that bad people have bad things happen to them and good people have good things happen to them. And the meaning that this gives suffering is that if you are suffering, it's because you've done something wrong or someone you know has done something wrong or someone in your family has done something wrong or you in a past life has done something wrong. But whatever the case, if you're experiencing suffering, it's a matter of justice. You are suffering because of wrongdoing. And so with this worldview, it does give suffering a meaning because it's not purposeless. It's because you've done wrong and it's an opportunity to change and to do right and hopefully, therefore, have a better future for you or for your family. This is the understanding of suffering. I saw this kind of worldview wrapped up in a book I read recently. I won't give you the title of it, just so it doesn't spoil anything. But this story is a story of, uh, of a family um, living in an Eastern culture, and the daughter has a child out of wedlock and has the child to an underworld kind of figure, and they separate, and then the rest of the story is following the generations that go on from that. Now, as this girl grows older, while she's in her kind of the twilight of her life, her son, who is born to this um, underworld figure, takes his own life, and it shatters her world completely. And her mother, on her dying bed, takes the moment 
to chastise her daughter for what happened. And she takes her daughter aside and says to her, You brought shame on your child by having that man as his father. You caused your own suffering. That boy came from bad seed. You're fortunate that someone remarried you. What a blessing that man was. Your other son came from better blood. That's why he's blessed in his work. You see the worldview here? You did the wrong thing. That's why you're suffering. You did a bad thing. Now a bad thing has happened to you. Later on you did a good thing. So good will come from that. The universe is perfectly just and has a way of working things out. Now you can see in some ways the appeal of this. It means that suffering is never meaningless. But you can also see the problem with this worldview. It's incredibly shame-inducing, isn't it? That not only do you have to wrestle with the overwhelming pain of suffering itself, now on top of that, you have to take moral responsibility for it. And maybe you even have to take responsibility for the suffering someone in your family is experiencing because of something you did. It's almost unbearably crushing. But that's the moral view of suffering. That's the first one. The second one then is almost the opposite, the fatalistic view. This is the idea that, really, that suffering is not just, it's not a perfectly just system, it's in many ways random. This is what you might call the it is what it is experience of suffering. And we've, ne we've not heard that phrase on our own tongues or on others more often than in the last two years. But this is the view that um, there might be a God or a supernatural force, but suffering is basically a test. And if you can overcome it, you'll become a stronger person and a stronger character and a better person for it. And the meaning it gives to suffering is that God or that supernatural force or the universe is testing you and you can become a stronger person and there's a kind of a heroism to suffering. This is a trial or a test. And on the other side of it is the glory of having overcome it. It can lead to character. And you can see the appeal that this has. It's kind of the whatever doesn't kill you, make you stronger kind of view of the universe. And the helpful thing is, it doesn't make you take moral responsibility for all the suffering that's going on. And it can lead you to actually see these trials as some kind of a hero's quest. But the flip side is it can also make you very hard-nosed and cynical. The universe is random. You've just got to put up with it. Get a bag of concrete and harden up. This is life. Get on with it. And the other issue is that you may not pass the test. You might be crushed by your suffering. Many people experience suffering so acute they don't really fully recover from it. And so with that then, you have the difficulty of having been crushed by a trial and then also having the knowledge that you didn't pass, you didn't become a better person, you didn't make a better life out of it, and instead it's overcome you rather than you overcoming it. But this is the fatalistic view of suffering. That's the second view. The third view that presents itself in some Eastern religions, also in Greek philosophy, is the idea that suffering is an illusion. In the worldview of Buddhism, suffering is because of our attachment to things, and if we can just become sufficiently detached or enlightened, we'll become not just better people, but we'll be able to be unsinged by this world. The reason that we suffer is because we desire things. If we cannot desire them, then we won't be so affected by it. But ultimately, it sees suffering as really an illusion. And we kind of, you can see the appeal of this in some ways. We know that different people experience suffering differently depending on the, the mental attitude they bring to it. So there is an experiential side to our suffering. You can also see that the appeal is that suffering might be a way through to a deeper kind of sense of self, an enlightened self, 
And so there is a kind of a hero's journey to it as well that maybe gives meaning to suffering. But probably the biggest problem with this one is that it's a worldview that's almost gaslighting you. You're not really suffering. Suffering's not really suffering. It's kind of, in a way, all in your head. And if you could overcome it, you wouldn't be suffering at all. And you can see the difficulty of this. You can see that the challenge of this is that even in suffering, there is the added struggle of being like, well, maybe I'm just not good enough to overcome it or significantly detach myself from things as well. But that's the illusion view of suffering. But then the last one is probably the most recent in world history. And what we'll call this one is just the secular view. Secular kind of, secularism broadly means that life is lived between birth and death. There's no great beyond. There's not necessarily any supernatural force and certainly no God. Or if there is, there's no way to know this God or gods. And basically life is lived in the here and now. And the way that suffering is understood under this worldview is that suffering doesn't mean anything. It's random. It's not just. It's just a bad experience that happens. I realize that Richard Dawkins may not be the, the voice you choose to, to voice it, you know, an agnostic worldview, but his summary of suffering here, I think, is, is reasonably apt. Dawkins writes, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. He's a happy soul, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> But I think what he's trying to be here is intellectually honest. That if you believe, as he does, that we are the result of blind evolutionary forces, there is no grand concept of design, justice, or purpose, that suffering is random, and ultimately doesn't have any higher meaning. And so what this leads to is a worldview that is basically the main approach to suffering is because it doesn't mean anything, and it doesn't produce anything, it's just as much as possible get away from it. We try to make our culture as safe as we possibly can, to keep suffering as far away from us as we possibly can, because we won't gain anything by it. For some, it leads to what you might call like a sunny nihilism, the idea that, look, there's no particular meaning to the universe, so just try and enjoy your life. There was a campaign in the UK about a decade ago that kind of sprawled across billboards and buses and bus stops the phrase, there probably is no God, so just enjoy your life. And that's the kind of approach. There's no particular meaning to it. Just try and live as the best life that you possibly can. But the problem with that is that when suffering breaks through, it's not really enough, is it? A kind of myopic optimism is not enough to get through real suffering when you've encountered it and real difficulty. See, the problem with our approach in the West is that we mainly just try to avoid it. There has probably been no culture like ours that talks about death as little as we do, even in a pandemic. We dive into distraction, entertainment, work, fun, pleasure, whatever we can do. And so our main approach is to avoid it, and if we do encounter it, to hopefully work it out of our lives as quick as we possibly can. There's no dignity or heroism or any great story connected to it. There's not a, a greater meaning to it. 
And so what this can leave us feeling when we experience genuine suffering is actually just feeling a little bit empty. Sarah Jones wrote a piece for New York Magazine last week called An Atheist Reconsiders God in the Pandemic. It's true that suffering might cause you to doubt your faith if you have one, but it also might cause you to doubt your atheism. And in her article, she describes herself grasping for a deeper meaning to her suffering. Her grandfather died of COVID during the pandemic, and she was able to plant a memorial flag at the Washington Monument with 700,000 other flags when they did that. And she was saying, look, I don't want to be cynical about that. I think that was a significant gesture. But in her experience, she described it as thin. That is probably not sufficient enough in gravity for the moment of suffering that she'd experienced. She goes on to talk of longing for a deeper meaning, but she couldn't really bring herself to go back to the church where she'd experienced so much hypocrisy and fundamentalism. And she writes, when another friend died, that when I learned that my young friend had died, I went for a walk, and there was nothing else I could do. I could not light a candle for him in church. I could not berate God for the random cruelty. There was nothing except myself on a walk alone through Brooklyn. It's not so unusual to be paralyzed by unbelief in a moment of grief. The nearest comfort I found was in other people. God may yet reveal himself to me, and unless he does, all that waits for me in the dark is other people trying to find their way out. If suffering is just random and unjust and to be avoided, then I'd say the secular view probably forms the palest and thinnest of all the approaches to suffering. It leaves us with very little equipment for dealing with suffering meaningfully and often leaves the bereft breathing. And so now we come to the approach of the Bible. How does the Bible explain the problem of suffering and the fact that there is a God who is both loving and powerful supervening a universe in which there is suffering? Well, the Bible story starts like this. Human, humankind rejects God and we decide that we want to build our own lives and our own meanings. And this is what the Bible calls sin. And because of that, we are separated from our creator God. And sin and pain and suffering enter the world. As God withdraws from his creation, sin enters the world. We break God's good commands and designs for us. And so there is pain and difficulty in that. But also the world itself is broken by sin. We have natural disaster. Things that are not moral issues, but are very pain-inducing. And we have a world that's broken by sin. The Bible explains that suffering came into the world because of this break in our relationship with God. Now at this point you might be saying, well, I've heard this one before. This is just the moral vision kind of redubbed. But the truth is that the Bible doesn't hold to the moral vision of suffering. In fact, in the Gospel of John, an account of Jesus' life, his disciples actually ask him, whether or not he believes in the moral view of suffering. A blind man comes up and approaches them, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or this man's parents, that he was born blind? So you see the moral view of suffering in that, right? They're saying he's blind, something bad has happened to him. Who did the bad thing, him or his parents? And Jesus responds surprisingly in John 9 by saying this. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says he rejects the moral view. He says, no, it's not because he's done some particular sin that he's been born blind. 
Actually, he's experiencing just the general suffering that we experience by being in a world that was broken by sin. But he says that suffering is not meted out one for one. You do a bad thing, you get a bad thing. You do lots of bad things, you get lots of bad things. Actually, there are ways in which it is almost unfair. But Jesus says, but in this, God will show his work. That suffering in the Bible, though it has been brought on by sin, is an opportunity for God to do his work and be merciful to us. And we see this no more clearly than at the cross where Jesus died. In 1 Peter 3.18, the passage that Alicia read out to us before, this sums up all of Jesus' life when it says, For Jesus suffered for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The claim of the Bible is that actually God suffered for our wrongdoing, contra the moral view. That we have rejected God because of that suffering has entered the world, and yet Jesus entered human history and suffered on our behalf to bring us back into relationship with our Creator God. See, it's not the moral view. The moral view is you do bad, you get bad. The Bible view is we've done wrong, and yet Jesus suffers for us. It's not the fatalistic view. God is not testing you to see if you pass. Jesus is the one who passed the test for you. He died for your sin on your behalf. And not only that, but God is not far off watching the hunger games below, but actually he comes and enters human suffering and human history and experiences it on our behalf. It's not the illusion view. Your suffering is real and it's bad and it's a part of the real brokenness of this world. And it's something that Jesus has come to fix and one day will sort out completely and will take away all suffering completely. It's not an illusion. It's not the secular view. It has meaning. There is, it's an opportunity for God to show his mercy and his kindness to us in our difficulty and in the suffering that we experience. See, the Bible view is entirely different to the others. It's an entirely different way of understanding the universe, but also the place of suffering within it. It's the only world religion that claims that God actually came and suffered. That Jesus himself was God experiencing suffering on our behalf. To kind of capture the uniqueness of this, a one poet, Ed Shalito, wrote, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. God gets your suffering. He is an all-powerful and all-good God who has not sat pristine and away from our, from our suffering, but has experienced it on our behalf. And this is a profound vision and a un, a one that's unique to Christianity and the Bible. But even after all that, you still might say, well, look, that sounds all very lovely and poetic and great, but there are many unanswered questions of suffering still. Like, why? Why me? Why them? Why now? Why so difficult? And the truth is that we don't get answers to questions like these in the Bible. There is still mystery. You don't get a, a neat and tidy little package. In the moral view, you do. Every, every bit of suffering is explained. It's connected to someone's wrongdoing somewhere along the line. But there is still some mystery in it. And this may seem unacceptable to you, but I wonder if there is something about our modern condition that makes this more objectionable than it needs to be. The truth is that humankind has suffered throughout all human experience. 
But ancient cultures didn't consider suffering to be an objection to the reality of God. And the reason for it is possibly this, that we live in a modern scientific culture and we have triumphed over so many challenges and complicated problems that other cultures throughout time were not able to solve. And because of that, we do find it hard to believe that there might possibly be a problem out there that is so complex that even if it were explained to us, we wouldn't be able to understand it. We have so much confidence in the modern mind that our tendency to think is that if God is not telling us something, that it's either that he's hiding something or that there really is no answer and maybe God doesn't exist. But couldn't it be possible that the problem of evil and suffering is so difficult that even if God were to sit you down and have a chat and explain it all, that our finite human mind may not be large enough to understand it. That there may be things that we just couldn't understand. And so the question really becomes, given that every worldview has its issue with suffering, is there enough in the Bible to trust that God is both good and powerful? That's the question that we're left with. Does it make meaning of suffering and is there enough to believe that God is both good and powerful? Now let me just share with you one short story, a playlet written by John McNeil that's meant to answer this very objection. It's called The Long Silence and you'll get why right at the end. He depicts the scene where all people for, throughout all human history are standing before God on the last day, the judgment day. And he describes it in this way. He says, at the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with shame, but belligerently. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, protested one girl. She ripped up her sleeve to reveal a Nazi tattoo from a concentration camp. We endured terror and torture and death and beatings. Another man lowered his collar and said, what about this, revealing an ugly rope burn? Killed for no crime but the colour of my skin. Far out across the plain there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering that he had permitted in the world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that humankind had been forced to endure? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each group sent forth a leader, chosen because they had suffered the most. And at last, they were ready to present their case. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a person. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Let him give him a work so difficult that even his family will think he's out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried and by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die that there may be no doubt that he has died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced their portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the great throng of people. And when the last had pronounced their final sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word, no one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. The claim of the Bible is unique, that God has suffered. That though 
suffering has entered the world because of our rejection of him, he has come and suffered on our behalf in our place. So you do not have a God who cannot understand suffering, who cannot empathize, who does not care, but who is intimately knowing of our suffering. And isn't this enough to believe that God is good and powerful at the same time? And that he can be trusted even in a world where for now there still is suffering before the time when he restores all things. This is the claim of the Bible, the unique claim of the Bible. The framework and the story that it gives us to understand suffering and to endure it. But it also gives meaning to suffering that's unique. The second passage that we're to look at is from Romans, which talks about what suffering now produces for the follower of Jesus. And look what it says in Romans 5, 1-5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The claim of the Scriptures is that when you follow Jesus, when you trust him, your sin has been taken away and he has died in your place to restore you back to God. You now have what it says there, peace with God. And the meaning that this then gives suffering is as we wait for God to restore all things, as we wait for the day when every tear will be wiped away from every eye, until that day, suffering as we go through it, as painful and difficult as it is, can produce in God's grace joy and hope. That the point of it is not that it's a test that God has abandoned you to pass by yourself, but he walks through it with you. That it's not a moral thing because actually Jesus has died in your place for you, that it's not an illusion, it's real and it's painful and it hurts, but it can produce things equally real like joy and hope. And that because of this, many Christians have found in Jesus the strength and resource to move through suffering in profound ways. I had the unique experience years ago of giving the eulogy at my great-aunt's funeral, whom I'd never met. The reason this had happened is that in the final year of her life, my dad had actually met her for the first time. My dad's family had been separated for various reasons, and so it was the first time that he actually met his great-aunt, or his aunt, my great-aunt. And they came to, uh, to find that both of them had a faith in Jesus, and that was a real connection point. And so in her final years, he actually got to spend a lot of time with her. But on the day of her funeral, he was unable to make it. And so I was asked to read out some quotes that she'd asked specifically to be read at her funeral. Now, it's fair to say that for my great-aunt Lindsay, that she had suffered in almost every way possible. That she had suffered throughout her life rejection and abuse and all kinds of trial and difficulty. And now, finally, was actually leaving life prematurely through an illness that could not be cured. And from the outside looking in, it looked in every way as though suffering had completely overcome her. That the brokenness and cruelty of this world had had the final say on her life. But for those who knew her in the final days, they saw in her a hope and a joy that was remarkable. That she had a simple faith and a strength in death that many accomplished doctors and specialists just marveled at. And the reason she said was because she knew Jesus. And I had to read out a list of quotes that she herself had written out, that she wanted read through. 
And the one that caused me to stop probably the most was just at the end. She had, there was one expression that she wanted read out in which she said that if she could choose between the life of suffering that she'd endured or a cushy life without Jesus, she would choose the life of suffering with Christ. That he was a treasure good enough that it was worth the life that she'd had now that she was going home to enter glory. This is the kind of hope, this is the kind of grace and mercy that can be produced by the gospel. That the view of the scripture is that human suffering is a moment in which God can work profoundly. It's not the moral view, it's not a chance to do better, it's not the fatalistic view, it's not a test that you had to pass, it's not the illusion view, it's all just in your head, it's not the secular view that it's meaningless. But it's a chance for God to do a mighty work of mercy, even as he did in my great aunt. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are not a silent God, that you are not an absent God, but that you speak to us in this world broken by suffering and pain, that you know it intimately and profoundly, and that you have provided a way through in Jesus, that in him you are bringing all things together, that one day you will restore all things, and until that day, the hope of the gospel gives us enough to endure and to even find joy and hope for the journey. Father, we just pray that you would strengthen us in this way. We might know you and love you.